met you yet. My name is Maddie. It's nice to meet you. I've been at Valley here for um, a while and get to teach every once in a while. And it's one of my favorite things I get to do. I'm so happy to see lots of familiar faces and faces I don't know. I am always so grateful for these times because I just truly believe that when we open the scriptures, the Lord reveals himself to us. And tonight is another opportunity to do that. So while there's oftentimes you come to church, I don't know what your weekend looked like. It's Labor Day weekend. I don't know if you're thinking about where you're going to eat after this or what your tomorrow plans are. It's always easy to come to church just in general with distractions, with burdens, with things on our minds. And I just am a firm believer that sometimes we just need to take a minute and we just need to refocus. We need to remember why we're here. We need to remember that the Lord can make himself so known as we read his word, as we praise him, sing his goodness back to him. So just take a moment with me. Let's just pray. Let's quiet our hearts, quiet our minds. Lord, we believe you and we trust you that you are so good. And Lord, we are excited to hear what you have to tell us tonight. Regardless of where everyone is at in this room, I ask that you just make yourself really known. You speak to us through your spirit and that we get to step one step closer towards your heart as we re-anchor our lives and our hearts towards you, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So tonight we are speaking about longing, things we long for, things in our hearts that we have just been waiting for a very long time, uh, waiting for things to come. I know me personally, one thing I'm currently waiting for is for it to get colder. Is anybody else with me? <laughs> I know that this is a, a touchy subject uh, when it is really hot out. Um, we have our faithful summer people who say, never, I want summer to last forever. Oregon is rainy too much of the year, and I want to soak up as much of the sun as possible. I, on the other hand, am like, Lord, bring the rain. I am hot, and it has been too long. I know we had a late summer, so... I'm sure it will stick around well into September, but here we are. Uh, some people get excited for the fall. Some people get excited for pumpkin spice lattes. That is their introduction to the fall. I personally am a big fan of Easy Orchard's apple cider slushies. If you've never been, if you've never experienced, this is my gift to you. Go to Easy Orchards. Don't just get a jug of their cider, but stand in line at the little stand to get the Easy Orchard slushies. That, to me, is the perfect introduction to fall, and fall is here. Uh, I went camping at Detroit last weekend, and I love that area. I love driving over the pass um, into Bend, but this time I stopped just at Detroit and uh, camped there. And Detroit has always been, I think, such a beautiful, it's like every time I go there, I'm like, oh, Lord, you are so good and you are so beautiful. Look at this wonderful creation you've given us. And uh, the city, as you may know, was once destroyed by fires. And you can tell that the city starting city, town, whatever you call it, 
road through Detroit. Uh, you can tell that it's starting to be restored, rebuilt. New homes are going up. But I couldn't help but remember when I was at Detroit looking up towards the hills and you see the burned down still representations of how terrible and very scary and very destructive those fires were. I just was brought back to remembering how much I longed for rain in those moments, praying that the Lord would save our earth, save our planet, save our state, because it was just in fire. And so tonight in our passage, we are going to see how Israel was longing for something. God's people was longing so desperately for their king. They had been longing that this kingdom that Jesus had been talking about would come to fruition. And we are going to be reading Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem when he actually introduces officially and formally the kingdom is here. So I want to paint, uh, paint the background a bit. I want to paint the picture because this passage, we could very easily just read Jesus rides in on a donkey, <laughs> the triumphal entry. There's so much more to this passage, and I think in understanding the background, understanding the circumstances with which Jesus came in, are really going to help us see the weight of this entry, of Jesus's entry into Jerusalem. So in, to kind of like orient yourself, what we're talking about is Palm Sunday. This is the day that the palm trees are laid down and Jesus rides in into Jerusalem. So if we're looking at Holy Week in the calendar, Palm Sunday is the Sunday before Resurrection Sunday. So we have Jesus coming into Jerusalem on Sunday. Wednesday, Judas is bribed to betray Jesus. Thursday is going to be the Last Supper. Jesus shares this meal with his disciples. On Friday, Jesus is going to be crucified. And then on Sunday, he's going to rise from the dead. And the significance of Jesus coming to Jerusalem at this time is that it was actually leading up to Passover. So there are crowds of people coming to Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, and they're here to celebrate this annual Passover celebration. And so Jesus coming to Jerusalem at this time is no mistake. So Jesus has been doing ministry in all of these surrounding areas, but at this moment he decided, this is when I'm going to go back to Jerusalem. So the significance of Passover is, if you can remember, all the way back in Exodus, there was, uh, there were some dark circumstances where Jesus said, or Yahweh said, I'm going to pass over all of the homes and I'm going to strike the firstborn. But those who have the blood of a sacrificial lamb over a doorpost are going to be spared. So the blood of a sacrificial lamb was required. And so this Passover meal is a celebration and remembrance of this deliverance of the Israelites in Egypt when they were enslaved. Jesus himself would echo this Passover when he broke bread and spilled wine with his disciples. The broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus who is about to be crucified. So it's just important again to remember that at this time, it was that Jesus decided to come into Israel. It was at this time that he decided, I want to make sure my kingdom is present for all to see. So 
Let's start reading our passage. We are in Matthew chapter 21. Turn there or look there, click there on your phone, or look at the screen, whatever you want. So we're just going to go verse by verse through our passage tonight. On the first verse, uh, we have when they approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. Now, we, you maybe not even have realized this, but Jesus has actually been taking this journey back to Jerusalem for quite some time. All the way back in chapter 16, he, if you can remember uh, the passage where Jesus says, Peter, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. And God says, yes, Jesus says, yes, that is who I am, but don't tell anyone, because at that time, his ministry was still secret. And in Matthew 16, verse 21, it's on the screen, you don't need to turn there, it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and to be killed and to be raised up on the third day. So all the way back in chapter 16, we're in chapter 21 right now, all the way back in chapter 16, there's just this mention of Jesus' plan. And I kind of think of it like, you know when you watch a movie and they tell you exactly what's going to happen? And like maybe you caught it, but maybe you didn't. And then it happens and you're like, wait a minute. I did not, I did not see that coming. How did, did everyone else see that coming? How did I miss that? That's, I think, what is going on here. Jesus is like, hey, this is what's going to happen. But I think the... Disciples just have no understanding of what that means of going to Jerusalem because we know how the story goes. Jesus is going to die. That's where he's going. He's going to Jerusalem to his death. And that obviously is quite significant. And so I want to look at a map so we can kind of see what this journey looked like. So we have our first map. And of course it's small. Of course you guys can barely see it. Um, But you can see the line is tracing the journey that Jesus was taking. All the way up in the top right corner, there's the Sea of Galilee, which is where, at least on this map, where it starts. He was still further up north even. So he's on his way down. And of all of the times where we've been going through Matthew, we've been seeing all of these, um, kind of at the beginning of every chapter, there's like, and then Jesus traveled here. This is what we're mapping. We're mapping Jesus's journey. And so in um, chapter 19, for example, at the beginning, uh, we see a line that says he departed from Galilee, and then he came down into the region in Judea. So he's coming down. That's where we can see, we can kind of map that on there. Um, We even have uh, last week in Kristen's passage that she spoke on, uh, Jesus healed the blind, two blind men. And that was coming out of Jericho, which is down at the bottom of the map. So I just wanted to kind of like, so you you can see what this journey looks like. And then he's going down down to Jerusalem, which is going to be at the bottom in the center of the map. So again, I just can't help but wonder if the the disciples are like, so he's really going to die? I don't really know if that's what's going to happen. I don't know if we can believe that. Um, Because Jesus, even again in chapter 20, says... Uh, reminder, I'm going to Jerusalem. 
the Son of Man is going to be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. They're going to condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles and crucify him. And then on the third day, he's going to be raised up. So I just can't help but wonder, what were they thinking? I don't know. Did they believe him? It's hard, it's hard to know. Uh, the second map I have for us is just a little bit more specific to Jerusalem. So we have here more so where our passage is going to be tonight. So he is coming down the Mount of Olives, which is by where that Bethphage is, Bethphage, uh, and then he's going to go back up to the temple. So when you think of mountains in this climate, don't think Mount Hood. That's not what we're talking about here. Uh, think more, Michael gave this example one time, think of like the hills of West Salem, like the Mount of Olives is like the hills of West Salem, and then there's a valley, and that's probably going to be more like the Willamette River, and they're going to come back and you're going to see the temple, like you're going to see the Capitol building in downtown Salem. I feel like that's helpful orientation and understanding. So this is what the journey is looking like. So Jesus is going from this elevated place, if you will, on the Mount, Mount Olives, coming down only to come back up to the temple, but instead of being enthroned, he's going up to his cross to be crucified. So, picking up in verse 2 and verse 3. So, Jesus is sending two disciples, and he says to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you should say, the Lord has need of them and immediately he will send them. So it's interesting, again, we don't really have any mention of a plan that Jesus put into place, but it seems very intentional because he says, you will find a donkey. A donkey will be there for me to ride on. So he has this plan. And he has this um, special password, if you will, special code. The Lord has need for it, and that will work. And it did. Sure enough, it worked. Um, just a couple of notes about the donkey and the colt. Uh, if we look at other stories, uh, other d uh, gospel authors telling this story, some only mention a donkey, and there's just some potential what you could view as discrepancies. And I have literally heard people say, the Bible can't be trusted because each of the gospel authors give a different version of this, whether is it, was it a donkey, was it a colt? Um, you could think of it like a colt was a young donkey, the, uh, yeah, a young donkey, the donkey was the mother. I just think the importance here is not in these fine details. The importance is the type of animal that was delivered. And so you can surely ask yourself, why is Jesus, Jesus riding in on a donkey? Because we really have two images here. We have the image of a king who would certainly not arrive on a donkey, but on a horse. A horse is going to signify war. It's going to signify a war cry. But instead, a donkey is going to signify peace and humility. It was more likely that it was something that a priest or a merchant or just a normal citizen would be riding on. And so it's almost funny to say a king riding on a donkey would be contradictory, because why would a king be riding in on a donkey? And so picking up in verse 4, Matthew says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughters of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. 
gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and they brought the donkey in the colt, laid their coats on them, and he sat on their coats. That was all the way through verse 7. So Matthew here is saying, hey, dear reader, just in case you didn't pick it up, this is actually to fulfill two different prophecies. One is Isaiah 62:11, and the other is Zechariah 9:9. So these are actually a combination of two different prophecies. And rather than, I think, just saying like, hey, it fulfilled a prophecy, I think what Matthew is trying to do here is to just paint this picture because the first half, we kind of have this language of victory. If you read the larger context of that verse in Isaiah, you really have this like big victory language. You have the Lord swears by his right hand and his strong arm, give no rest until he establishes Jerusalem, go through the gates, clear the way, build up a highway. And you just have this like, okay, got it. That's what the image of this king could look like coming in. But then that paired with Zechariah's passage, we have this mention that he's actually on a donkey. He's humbled on a donkey. And even in the passage in Zechariah, there's this contradiction of what a king would look like on a donkey versus a king that was on a chariot or a war horse or with a battle bow. And so when Jesus is coming in as this triumphal king, you would think this isn't the time to be riding in on a donkey. That's not what they're looking for. That's not what they're hoping for. And they aren't really imagining that this form of humility that Jesus would have is not really going to come in the, in the way of how he's presenting himself in this triumphal entry. And so when you highlight these two verses together, these two prophecies, it not only shows that Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy, but that Jesus is introduced as the king of peace. The king that they've been looking for, the king that they've been hoping for, might not be exactly the king that they expected, the king that they thought he would be. That he's this king of peace. And picking up back in verse 8, so most of the crowd spread their coats in the road. They were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed, they were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So regardless of how Jesus enters the city, the people are picking up on this allusion to Isaiah and Zechariah, and they're turning what could have just been an arrival. Jesus' plan was just to arrive. He's just going to Jerusalem. But they pick up on it, and they turn it into this triumphal entry. They're laying down their coats into this ceremonial carpet for the king to ride in on. And they're really trying to honor that they believe, Jesus, I believe that you are this Messiah coming into the city. There's crowds in front of him, there's crowds before him, and the phrase they were shouting could also really just gives the idea that they kept shouting for quite some time. So there was quite a ruckus. This is not just this small little thing. <laughs> there is definitely something happening. They're excited for this king of Israel who would overthrow Rome. And even in this passage, um, in verse 9, uh, Matthew is quoting Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And to come in the name of someone 
meant that they were representing that person in order to do their purpose. So Jesus is claiming to come in the name of Yahweh. He's saying, yes, I am representing Yahweh, and I am here to do Yahweh's purpose. Hosanna, meaning God save us, God save us now. These cries of desperation and praise in the highest are these praises going all the way up to heaven itself. And so these are claims that only the Messiah can make. Only the power of the Messiah can do these things to represent Yahweh. In Luke 19, his version of this gospel, he says that at this point, the Pharisees were rebuking Jesus, saying, hey, you need to tell your people to stop saying these things. These are like heresy. And Jesus says, if they are quiet, even the rocks will cry out. So powerful that even the rocks know and understand the significance of Jesus of Nazareth. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. This loud and clear praise of Jesus is certainly different than his ministry so far. So far, he's kept his ministry very quiet. This is the first time that they really are, Jesus is saying like, yes, go ahead. I'm not going to quiet the crowds. The crowds can be as loud as they want in saying who I am. There's a quote by J. Dwight Pentecost, which I think really well represents this passage. It says, this was the day of Christ's official presentation of himself as Messiah to Israel. Christ was identified before the nation as Messiah at his baptism. He was authenticated as Messiah at his temptation. His glory as Messiah was revealed at his transfiguration, but it was at his triumphal entry that Christ made an official presentation of himself as Messiah to the nation. And so one of the ways that this messianic identity was revealed is through this use of the term son of David. They're calling out son of David, son of David. And I think Matthew really wants us to connect the importance of Jesus connected to David. Even at the very beginning, however long ago, when did we start Matthew? Can't even, couldn't even tell you when we started studying Matthew. The first chapter, we went through the genealogy. I don't expect you to remember this. It was a while ago. But uh, Matthew connects Jesus through the line of David. It's really important. We see how he is connected to David. And even when he summarizes the whole genealogy, he goes, so it goes from Abraham to David, then we went into captivity, and then it connects to the Messiah. Like, really clear cut. We, d Matthew wants us to understand this Messiah is connected to Abraham, the, which we knew there would be a descendant from Abraham. We knew there would be a descendant from David. This is the one. We've heard this phrase, son of David, several times, lots of times, even in our passage last week. Um, they called out, son of David. All these people are starting to give him this title, son of David. Even after healing a demon-possessed man, someone says, can man not be, can man can't, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? That's what I'm trying to say. Kind of like, wait, this isn't the one we've been waiting for, is it? Could it really be the one? And so we care about this title because, again, we're painting this picture of the importance of this triumphal entry because we've been waiting for someone from the line of David. In 2 Samuel 7, uh, David is talking with God, okay? I'll just, I'll summarize this story for us. David says, hey God, 
I'm going to build you a temple. It's going to be really nice. Really nice temple for you to dwell in. And God says, oh, are you the one who should be building me this temple? Really? I've been traveling with Israel. I've been in tents. I've been in tabernacles. Have I at any point told the leaders of Israel, why haven't you built me a temple yet? A temple of cedar. And God says, hey, David, I'm actually going to make you a great name. I'm going to appoint a place for my people. I'm going to plant them there. Garden imagery, anyone? They're not going to be disturbed there. The wicked won't afflict them anymore. I'm actually going to make a house for you. I will give you rest. Once again, garden imagery, anyone? I want to read one section from this 2 Samuel 7. It's going to be on the screen in verses 12 through 16. Um, Sorry, I had to find it there. Okay, 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. This is God speaking to David. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So this is this example of this prophecy of a here and a not yet. It has come, and it has not yet come. I like to think of these prophecies, I think I've used this analogy before, but if you think of two mountains, if you're looking at two mountains from, pick any mountain range, and they look right next to each other, but in reality, they're actually really far away from each other. But if you're looking at them like this, they look really close. You kind of see two mountains, but then you look at it at this other angle, and you realize, oh, these two mountains are far away from each other. This is helpful in understanding prophecies when they talk about a circumstance right now and they talk about a circumstance that has not yet come. So we can see this example of, you know, God talks about how um, when this son um, sins, when he has iniquity. Well, Jesus isn't going to sin, but David is going to have a son who's going to sin. But there's this further image of this son, this line from the line of David, who is going to restore Israel, and that's going to be Jesus. So we have this this desperation of the people who have been waiting for the son of David. We know that these people have been longing to restore their kingdom with Jesus as their king. They don't know it was Jesus, but they're waiting for someone to restore them back to this kingdom. So when the people are calling out son of David, this is representative of hope. They're saying, I believe that you are the Messiah. I believe that you are the one bringing this eternal kingdom that we have waited for. So there are some that didn't understand in verses 10 and verses 11. Some people are like, who is this? We don't know who this guy is. There's this ruckus that has been created coming into Jerusalem 
Uh, and some people say, he's the prophet. I don't know. He's the guy from Nazareth. They don't understand the weight of what this means. But others did understand. They understood that what they had been longing for was the restoration of the brokenness of their world. They were longing for the son of David to fulfill this eternal kingdom. So I ask you tonight, what does it feel like to long for something? It could be longing for the restoration of a broken relationship, maybe with an estranged child or a sibling or a parent. Longing for the redemption of a broken or wounded marriage that is just slowly being rebuilt. Longing for a family member to surrender their life and make Jesus their king. Or maybe longing for a medical test results to come back negative, for the healing to come, or for the mercy of the Lord to free someone from physical suffering and to bring them home healed and into the Lord's arms. Longing for the release from our current circumstances of brokenness and pain, idolatry, disappointment, distraction. <laughs> Israel, they were longing for their king to finally be their king, to be with them and to be their God. They were longing for the promise of Jeremiah 32 when he says, I will bring them back to this place and I will let them live in safety they will be my people, and I will be their God. We long for the promise of Revelation 21, starting in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God, the dwelling place of God, is now with men. He will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, write this down, for these words are faithful and true. So we've been learning about the ethic of this kingdom of God. This whole time we've been studying Matthew. What is this kingdom like? It's a kingdom of Jesus, how he loves and restores and heals and serves. And the goal of this kingdom is to bring his people back into himself. There's a problem of sin that has separated us and wounded this relationship with us and our God. But he, Jesus is bringing it all back together in his kingdom where we dwell with God. So maybe it's been a minute since you feel like you've dwelt in the presence of God. Every single day, there's people and voices and influences from our culture that are just working against God's kingdom. They're subconsciously and consciously telling you how to think about this world that we live in. But Jesus offers a different way. It's in sitting in the presence of God that we realize the kingdom available to us. It's a kingdom of rest. We realize there's peace available to us. The longings of our heart will be relieved, knowing that our first and foremost desire is to be in communion with God. So the one thing I want to leave you with is Jesus wants to be with you. He went to Jerusalem to die 
to ensure that there was a way to make this possible. It doesn't matter how long it's been. It doesn't matter how near or far he feels from you right now. Turn to him. Tonight, you can rest in him. You can rest in his kingdom, rest in his presence. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for what you have promised us, what you have given us. You are so good in revealing this beautiful plan that you've had, that from the very beginning, things were broken, and ever since then, you have been bringing them back to yourself. So Lord, I ask that tonight, any, anything, any burden, any fear, any anxiety, any mountain that feels too hard to climb can be laid at your feet, Father. And that we can realize and walk in the beauty of your presence and all of the joy and peace that it brings. I pray these things in your name. Amen.